0: Welcome to Unless, Stories from Everyday Earth Sabers, a podcast where I interview ordinary people, people just like you who through passion, inspiration, or straight-up determination have found a way to direct the future of our environment toward a more perfect outcome. Through their words, I hope to inspire you, the listener, to learn, to grow, or to make a change no matter how small. Your actions have the power to shape our future, because in the great words of Dr. Seuss, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Now on to today's story. For those of you listening in real time, I am back. I have not podfaded. I have two more episodes in the editing stages to be released over the next week or so, and I hope to be on a bi-weekly schedule shortly. I'm also looking for future guests, so if you would like to be featured or know someone who would like to share their conservation work, no matter how small or big, email me at feedback at sciencecenes.com. That's feedback at sciencecenes.com. In today's episode, I had the pleasure to talk with Dr. Deanna Soper. I first met Dr. Soper as an instructor in one of my classes through the Miami University AIP program, and I couldn't wait to talk to her about her work. In this episode, Dr. Soper talks about her scientific research involving coral reproduction and evolution, climate change, and how she became interested in this work in the first place. Additionally, she describes how she manages to balance her career and family and simple, small ways people can work to lower their carbon footprint. So, let's get on with our story. Today on Unless Stories of Everyday earth savers, I'm here talking with Dr. Soper. Dr. Soper, how are you?
1: I'm good, thank you for asking.
0: What we do on this podcast is we have people who are involved in conservation work or education to share what they are doing and why they are doing it. So, can you tell me a little bit about the ways that you're involved in either conservation or environmental work?
1: Yeah. So I'm an assistant professor of biology at the University of Dallas. And I, for many years, actually, I've been a scuba diver. I've got my scuba certification in 2000. I was a high school teacher for many years before I went back for my PhD. And during that time, I was involved with a colleague who was teaching a marine biology class, and we would take students down to marine lab in Key Largo, Florida, and uh, to educate them on the different conservation issues that are going on with our coral reef. And it was during that time, we hadn't actually hit, um, we had only had one mass bleaching at that point. Um, Since that time, we've had at least two or three other mass bleachings. So I, when I got to the University of Dallas, Two and a half years ago, they wanted me to develop some upper level elective courses, and one of the things that I wanted to come back to was marine biology. My PhD was actually in a freshwater snail from New Zealand, and my area of expertise is in the evolution of reproduction. But I really felt a serious tie and draw to wanting to educate our students about the negative impacts of increased CO2 and global climate change. And one of the ecosystems that has been hardest hit is, of course, the coral reef ecosystems. And we're seeing lots of alterations in the marine environment. And so I... Developed the marine biology class a year ago was the first time that it was taught in the spring of 2018, and I happened to be going down to visit. I have an aunt and uncle that live in the Florida Keys. My uncle is Bill Becker. He's actually the US1 News Radio uh, host in in the Florida Keys, and he happened to know the at the time the director uh, of Moat Marine lab station, um, the field station there in Summerlin Key, Dr. David Vaughn. And so he introduced me to Dr. Vaughn. And I went there um, a year ago in February, in fact, to visit the facility and talk to him a little bit about the work that they're doing there. So I was during that visit that we started discussing the biggest questions that are really unanswered in coral biology and trying to understand coral growth and restoration efforts. So I came back to the University of Dallas with some questions, one question in particular that has to do with coral microfragmentation. He, a few years ago, realized that um, when you cut coral down to the size of a few polyps, two or perhaps three polyps, that it undergoes exponential growth. And so they've been utilizing this tool in the Keys to try to increase coral growth rate, to increase our ability to outplant um, corals back onto the reef to try to reseed the reefs. And one of his biggest questions that I discovered was that how is this happening genetically? We don't understand at the genetic level what's going on, what's triggering these cells to undergo rapid growth. And so I I took that question back to the University of Dallas, and I'm collaborating with one of my colleagues here in the department, Dr. Drew Stenison, who is a geneticist. And so we started discussing what are some of the genetic pathways that we might want to investigate. And so we are now currently investigating the Hippo growth pathway, um, which is highly conserved across species. And he had known about it because he's actually a Drosophila geneticist or a fruit fly geneticist. So although most of his work has been in fruit flies, he has done some work in the Hippo growth pathway and said this. this might might be a good pathway to investigate. And so that is how we have started to answer some basic biologic questions about coral growth. And hopefully, eventually, we'll be able to utilize this information in an applicative sort of way that could actually bring practical practical solutions to trying to reseed the reef. So that's really the biggest goal is trying to figure out how coral grows the way that it does, um, why it grows at this exponential rate, and then utilizing that information to develop a more practical application.
0: The coral reefs are not in good shape due to climate change, human encroachment, and and a lot of different different issues going on there. And so you're saying that there is, is some sort of micro fragmentation process with the, the polyps. Can you explain yeah. a what a polyp is and then what, yeah. what do you mean by micro fragmentation?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so we have lost 50% of the world's coral reefs in the last 30 years, primarily due to increasing global temperatures, which are the result of an increase in CO2 in our atmosphere, which is also acidifying the oceans. Um, We also have seen a big hit, especially in the Florida Keys, with several different diseases that have run through, um, which may or may not have something to do with the increase in temperature. We're unsure of that right now. If there's a temperature link, I suspect that there, I hypothesize that there actually is a link to temperature and increased disease prevalence. So because of all of that, a lot of restoration activities have been taking place. And there's a whole host of different restoration techniques across the world that are being used. I actually went to a conference in Key Largo in December where um, it was called Reef Futures. It was hosted by the Coral Reef Consortium. And researchers, over 500 researchers from across the, the planet, came to Key Largo in December to discuss not just basic coral biology, which of course we did that, but we also were dis- discussing practical applications of, of that um, knowledge. And one of several different restoration activities is microfragmentation. So coral is an animal that is basically a layer, um, the stony corals, so there's actually three different major groups of corals, so I'm mostly going to be talking about stony corals, which are the reef-building corals. And these corals have a layer of tissue that actually secretes calcium carbonate, which is kind of like a hard, it kind of looks like chalk substance, and that is their skeleton. And so when you go to a coral reef and you see these large boulders or these branching structures, you That's what you're seeing you're seeing the bouldering and the calcifying sort of coral species. These coral species are the foundation for the entire ecosystem. When we look at a coral animal, a coral animal is an animal that's made up of lots of little polyps. A polyp is an animal, the part of the animal that has Uh, tentacles that are surrounded by a single hole which is actually how it eats. So the tentacles will come out and will filter feed and bring food particulate matter inside and that's how it digests its food. The other part to the coral animal is that it has a symbiotic relationship with a very tiny little microscopic algae that lives inside of its tissues And so these little tiny algae cells also help to feed the coral. And this very complex organism is really dependent upon a lot of different features in the water, one being, of course, temperature. And if we raise the temperature by even a few degrees most coral species are going to start to w- do what we call bleaching. Bleaching is when you, uh, the coral actually releases its algae. And when it undergoes stress, it effectively kicks out these little algae cells that are usually there to help it. But it actually has to divert a lot of its, its energy and resources to its immune function and protecting itself. So as a result, it starts to bleach. And if the coral, um, if the conditions don't go back to normal and the coral is no longer stressed, within a certain amount of time, the coral animal will die. So bleaching is usually an indication that the coral is so stressed it's on the verge of dying. So we've seen that across the world, over 50%. We've lost over 50% of our, our reefs. I've been diving the Florida Keys for 18 years, and this past December, I was diving on a reef that I've dove since 2000 and it was very sad because there was lots of disease. There's lots of corals that you can just tell whole boulders where the soft tissue is gone and it's just the skeleton that's left. Um, and so Dr. David Vaughn in Mote, at Moat Marine Laboratory, actually, it's a really interesting story that he that he told me. He said that he had these corals, a species called Acropora palmata, which is an elkhorn coral, it's a branching coral. So it has these really big branches that almost look like elkhorn um, horns, the males, the stags that have the big horns on top of their head. So that's why they call it elkhorn coral. And he had that in a tank, in, he went to go move the, this piece of coral, and unbeknownst to him, this three-year-old piece of coral actually had attached to the bottom of the tank. And so when he moved it, there was just a couple of polyps left at the bottom of the tank that had attached. And he said, well, geez, you know, this coral, these few polyps are going to die because it's only a couple of polyps. He was really sad about it. He comes back a few months later, and those few polyps, those little tiny individual polyps had regrown back into a three-year-old individual within the span of three months. So, yeah, so rapid tissue growth. So it was that little event that actually led him to say, well, what if we take, you know, a larger piece of coral and we fragment it down to a couple of polyps, which are usually somewhere on the order uh, a couple of polyps their fragmenting size is anywhere from uh, around two two centimeters which is a little bit less than an inch so really really small pieces and so he started an operation in uh, Summerlin key where they actually take large pieces of coral they fragment it up I don't know where they're at today, but I know in a year ago they were at over 30,000 um, microfragmented pieces, and I know that that number is just growing and growing. Um, and then what they do is they track the developments. They look for signs. Every coral animal has a different genetic background, just like we do. I have my own set of genes. You have your own set of genes. And so coral animals are exactly the same. And some of them are more resistant to increased temperatures and decreased pH, and more acidic conditions than others. And so what they do is they take them and they track the different genetic backgrounds of different individuals to see who's doing really good and who's doing not so great in these conditions that we would predict in the future 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And then they grow those up and they put them back out onto the reef. So we're reseeding the reef with genetic backgrounds that we think are going to probably survive in the current conditions as well as what we predict for future conditions. Basically, that's what he's doing there. And then our work here at the University of Dallas is trying to understand the genetics behind why that rapid tissue growth actually occurs
0: cool so basically he's doing um, artificial selection to to speed up the process of evolution so that the, these populations can change faster than climate change and hopefully doesn't cause an extinction of these groups is that is that kind of in line with what well absolutely
1: happening? yeah we're trying to um, see if there's some way that we can just kind of help these corals along um, and help these corals that we're putting back out onto the reef, b corals that we know are going to be successful. And you use the term artificial selection. Actually, and I'm an evolutionary biologist. I had not heard this term previously to starting to work with the corals, but Dr. Ruth Gates, who we unfortunately lost at the end of last year due to cancer, she came up with the term assisted evolution. She was a professor at the University of Hawaii, and she has a phenomenal research group there. And they are basically assisting the process of evolution so artificial selection kind of gives the connotation that we're tinkering and we're going in if you think about like a basset hound right they have really long floppy ears and they have really floppy uh, short little stubby legs and we've manipulated that highly to be what we wanted basset hounds were bred for hunting Um, So they have short little legs and long ears to try and get those scents up into their nose better. Um, So that's not what we're trying to do with the corals. We're just trying to assist what's already present in nature and give it a little push, a little help, you know? And so, yeah, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to give the coral a little bit of an advantage to try to be maintained so that we can try to, mitigate or completely get rid of the possibility of extinction. Now, that's that's a lofty goal. I'm not sure we'll get there, but um, it is the goal that we're trying to prevent the extinction of, of the corals that are out there on the reefs right now. Ooh,
0: deep stuff. Always uh, cl- talking climate change, talking the bleaching of corals always kind of uh, gets me a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, Yeah. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I highly recommend the documentary Chasing Coral. It's on Netflix and Richard Beavers was the adverti- advertising executive who actually went to the the producer of Chasing Ice. Chasing Ice is a documentary that features the work of James Baylog and James Baylog is a time-lapse photographer who started documenting the collapse and the melting of, of the um, Arctic glaciers. And he uh, had a documentary that was done that featured his work. And then James, uh, Richard Beavers was um, an exec who started working with Google, and they have um, documented underwater in using sort of a Google Street sort of technology to try to document these reefs underwater because... Richard Beaver says, you know, he was in the advertising industry. He was trying to advertise um, tissue, toilet paper, um, toilet tissue paper. And he said at some point he just got to the point where he needed to try to figure out what he could do with his life that would be better than this. And he was an avid avid scuba diver, and he had started to see the decline in in coral reefs. So he said, you know, this is effectively an advertising problem because only about – 10 to 20% of people are ever going to even be able to snorkel on a coral reef. So how do we tell the rest of the world about what's going on under the water? And he said, this is an advertising problem. So he started to work with Google and they have, you can actually go on to Google maps yourself right now. If you go, I would recommend actually going to specifically the coast just off of Australia. Lizard Island is a place that they have lots of footage of underwater and you can, Take the little man that you would put onto the street and you see the street view. You can do the same thing in certain points in the water. And you basically are effectively diving under the ocean to see what's going on. And so he was on a plane and saw Chasing Ice and said, we need to make a documentary about the coral. And so he contacted the director and they started a partnership and they ended up filming uh, Chasing Coral. And so if anybody's really interested about the decline of coral reefs and the effect uh, that we're having as as a species on the planet, uh, that's an excellent documentary. I make my marine biology students all watch it. It's a required part of the course so I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely put it in the show notes and I, I have a feeling me and my daughter who are off school today are going to be uh, checking that out. She loves n- nature documentaries, so I'll, I'll definitely throw that on. Yeah. That's kind of the thesis of this podcast is that I think that a lot of conservation biologists, a lot of biologists in general, we, we have a big marketing problem. We, we need everyone to take action and we're not communicating our ideas well. We're not telling the stories of what is happening because people can't experience these directly. Like you're saying, only 10 to 20% of people are actually going to be down there seeing the coral. So how do we... We make, how do we reach that other 90 to 80%? And that's a marketing problem. That's an advertising problem. Right. So we need we need to start thinking a little bit more like marketers, like advertisers.
1: Yes, absolutely. And so it is kind of unnatural for us as scientists. You know, you, you think about marketing and advertising, and that's just a foreign concept to us. And many scientists do have problems using jargon, even myself, you know, using the word microfragmentation or a coral polyp. We can't assume that people that we're talking to actually know what we're talking about. So, yeah, and I highly recommend to anybody just going to their local aquarium. A lot of times they do have corals there that you can see. Like in Dallas, we have... The Dallas World Aquarium, and I always take my students there so that they can see lots of different coral animals um, in live, real in front of you, you know, although it's an aquarium, but maybe some people are scared to get out there in the middle of the ocean and or they're not very strong swimmers. And so they never will get to the coral reef. So, There are other ways to experience the coral reef, too.
0: Yeah, the whole thing that got me on my biology journey was my uncle just taking me to the the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago and looking at the dinosaur bones and all the dioramas and just being curious about that. And so that's so important is that we get out of our comfort zone a little bit and encourage people to visit these places to to engage, because if you can't engage, you're not going to take action.
1: Absolutely. So our museums and our aquariums do a great job of, and, and our zoos, too, trying to motivate conservation practices so yeah absolutely and I love shout out to the Field Museum I absolutely love the Field Museum I went to the Field Museum myself and despite the fact that I live in Dallas I am from Chicago and I do take my son to the Field Museum And he just last week was telling me about I want to go back and see Sue because the last time we were there they are actually building an entirely new exhibit just for her and he's like I want to see the new exhibit so this Christmas we're going back to Chicago we certainly will go see Sue. You're going
0: to have to see the new uh, the the, the giant sorrow now I think his name is Max or Maximus. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes. So we visited Maximus, yes.
0: (laughs) So speaking of engagement and motivation, I guess these next two questions kind of tie in together, so I'm just going to get them both out at the same time. How and why did you go from being a young Chicago child to being involved with this global issue with the coral reefs?
1: Oh my gosh, yes. It's been a long journey, so... I'll just tell everybody I'm 41 years old. (laughs) So, um, you know, a lot of people see my picture and they say, you couldn't be 41. Yes, I'm 41. And I grew up, I was born in a south um, suburb of Chicago. I grew up mostly in Northwest Indiana, graduated from Crown Point High School. And I was most of my education was in Indiana. My undergraduate degree was from Tryon University, which is a small private institution, and went back, taught at Crown Point High School for seven years before I went back to Indiana University in Bloomington to get my PhD in ecology, evolution, and behavior. When I graduated, I knew I wanted to be a professor. I knew I wanted to stay in academia. And of course, being an academic, though, a lot of times we have trouble finding jobs, even though I had a PhD. So we moved back to the Chicago area where my husband found a job and I, Um, adjuncted at Benedictine University as well as Lewis University. And then I had a short-term postdoc at the University of Iowa for a while. And then I ended up getting a visiting assistant professorship up at Beloit College in Wisconsin. So I was still living in the Chicago area because my husband was working in Downers Grove. And it was really during this entire time that And a lot of people ask me, like, how did you come to study snails, freshwater snails from New Zealand? Well, part of it was that when I was teaching in Northwest Indiana, I really loved evolution. We taught six weeks of evolution, and it was just a huge love of mine. Um, I loved being able to educate people about the, these very important natural processes. And when I went down to IU, I took a class from Dr. Kurt Lively, who ended up becoming my Ph.D. advisor, And I took a graduate level class from him. And he is actually the founder of the freshwater snail system that I worked with, this little teeny tiny freshwater snail. And I really just worked with that that snail for many, many years. One of the things that we struggle with, anybody, almost anybody who works with the snail is that... You know, I was looking into reproductive behaviors and it's very difficult for the normal person to understand why somebody would dedicate so many years of their life to understanding mating behavior in a snail. And it's really hard to say this is important for theoretical reasons and connect that to people. So really my journey back to more of conservation work and, and the coral reef is because I want to feel like I'm making a difference and I want that difference to actually be seen and be known a little bit more, you know, like I definitely want to, and I'm still continuing work with my snails, but there is some value, there's some intrinsic value to researching an endangered species and saying that the work that we're trying to do, even if it is that we're trying to understand the genetics of it, it might have an impact on the world and not just, not just this organism, but an entire ecosystem that the entire world, not just humans, is dependent upon. So it really makes you feel like, yes, I'm, I'm spending this time and energy and money um, to doing something really, really great that's going to have this huge impact.
0: So you're a mother, a wife, a professor, a teacher. You, you teach uh, not only at your university, but uh, through other universities like the AIP program. And mm-hmm. how, how do you do it all? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I've gotten asked that question a lot. Yeah, so I'm the mother of two children. I have a seven and a four-year-old, and... I have a husband and I'm very grateful that my mother has moved to Dallas and lives with us in fact. So they are part of the reason why I'm able to do what I'm able to do. In fact, on Friday I'm flying to Key West and I'm going to teach a marine field ecology class there and I'll be in the Keys for 10 days. And the only way that I'm able to do things like that is the support structure that I have with my husband and with my mom. Um, and of course sometimes my students will step in and babysit as well. So. Um, When I was in Belize, uh, you know, I have a student that comes over. Um, When I was in the Florida Keys, I have a student that comes over and helps babysit. So definitely support is a big piece. And the other piece is really balance. So when you have so many things on your plate, and you're trying to do research, and you have students that you want to teach, and you want to make this big impact, you really have to balance everything, though. So Last weekend I did a lot of work and I was grading on the couch on on Sunday. But this weekend, I'm gonna spend more time with the kids. And so you kind of have to you have to look at your schedule and say, all right, I need to balance this and make sure I reconnect in with my family. And we really do try each and every night to make it home. Now last night I made it home a little bit later than I should have and uh, missed dinner. But I try to make sure that I'm home for dinner. That I take my daughter to dance. That I take my Sanda Karate and I just try to prioritize that and I put it down you know you have to be able to kind of compartmentalize your life and yes I teach for um, the University of Dallas there is only one other institution that I'm teaching for right now um, and that's on a very very part time basis the University um, of Miami uh, and of Ohio Miami of Ohio not in Miami Florida but in Miami I've I've gotten that
0: a million times
1: I know right Miami of Ohio Not the University of Miami in Miami, yes. But I love teaching for Miami University, and I love interacting with the graduate students because at the University of Dallas, we actually uh, have undergraduate students, which they are phenomenal, and I get some amazing work done because they are a very high caliber of students, so I'm able to get graduate-level work sometimes out of them. But I really do enjoy connecting in with my graduate students online and I'm hoping to teach again in collaboration with the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo uh, summer class. And I love working with graduate students because they're at a very different level. And they themselves, like yourself, is making an impact on the world. So you kind of can amplify your impact when you work with graduate students. So that's why I like working with Miami.
0: Our final question that I ask everybody, everybody is is contributing to these conservation efforts, uh, environmentalism in their own ways, but... For somebody who is interested in helping, but maybe doesn't have the support that you have, or maybe doesn't have Mm -hmm. the scheduling ability that you have, basically the average everyday person that wants to help but doesn't know exactly where they can start, what would you suggest to them?
1: Yeah, um, there's so many things that people can do to really, even just little things, to reduce our impact. And one of those things is reducing your CO2 footprint as much as possible. There's lots of CO2 footprint calculators online that you can use, and you can see what different factors go into it. You know, driving a hybrid vehicle, perhaps, or choosing to put solar panels on your house, or even if you don't have the money to do those things, because those are a little bit more expensive, reducing your impact on plastic. So for example, right now, I was going crazy this morning, I didn't have time to make myself a lunch, I went through the Starbucks drive through, so of course, and, and of course, I, for, I have a reusable cup and I forgot it at home. But I actually keep a bamboo straw in my purse all the time, and so when I go to Starbucks, just even saying skip the straw, carrying a reusable straw with you is something you can do. Another thing is um, one of the things that I've just recently learned about is. Microfibers and microplastics are a huge issue in the ocean. And so, the clothes that you buy, trying to buy more cotton and organic type clothing as opposed to the synthetic clothing is also important because when you wash your clothes, all of these little tiny microfibers come off of your clothes and your washing machine doesn't catch it because they're so small. And we're finding these microfibers inside the guts of animals like sea cucumbers and sea stars. And so it's really important to try to reduce those sorts of impacts. So I challenge everybody, any person, and in fact, I have this project that I have my um, marine biology students working on right now that I'm calling the Plastic Project. Just for one day, take your phone and take a picture of every single plastic thing that you touch or use, and you'll be amazed. I'm making them actually take every single picture and put it on one PowerPoint slide, because they're going to have to make their little pictures so little, (laughs) because everybody is so dependent upon plastic. And I'm challenging them to actually just take one reusable plastic, not a lot, not everything, just one reusable plastic and replace it with something. And it might be the straw. It might be the plastic silverware. It might be something, anything that you reuse on a daily basis that's plastic, that's like a single use plastic and try and Replace it with something and just for one week and see how it goes. There's been times where I have brought my cup to Starbucks through the drive-thru and I see that they are actually pouring the coffee into a disposable cup. Then they pour that coffee into my reusable cup and throw the cup away. I'm like, that's not (laughs) – no. <laughs> That's not why I brought my reusable right. cup to you. So, you know, and so, you know, just trying to get in there and even educate the drive-through people, you know, like, well, if I'm coming through the reusable cup, maybe we should use that instead of, you know, pouring it into this disposable cup and then just turning around and throwing it away. Um, so, but there are going to be barriers. So, it's interesting to evaluate what are those barriers? And then how are you going to overcome that? And eat, that answer is going to be different for everybody. So I, just, I challenge the average everyday person to go out and do my plastic project, even if you don't have a professor that's going to grade it. <laughs>
0: No, I I hear you. It's uh, I was talking with my first interview subject, uh, Sonny Nelson, over at uh, Lincoln Park Zoo, and mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about the same thing. Is that you know we are both of conservation-minded people, and plastics are just so ingrained in our everyday lives that we we use so much more than we need to, and we don't even think about it. Right. You know, my wife is my um, kind of my uh, plastic policewoman. She's always telling me like, no, 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 no. Use the reusable container for your sandwich. You don't know. No, we're not wasting right. the plastic bags. So. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes, totally. It's, it's I It's just
0: so crazy how, once again, going back to the advertiser marketing mindset, how,
1: mm-hmm. how much
0: of our society has been just ingrained in that throw it away, use it, throw it away, buy more. Use it, throw it away, buy
1: more. Buy more, yeah. And not only that, we're just throwing away money. I mean, it's crazy how much money we're wasting. Um, and I have had people literally, it's totally a cultural thing. You're completely right. I have had people, when I say, I don't, I don't need the straw, I don't need that disposable fork for my egg bites that I got from Starbucks. <laughs> um, I don't need it. Then people will look at you like, what? And they almost take offense to it sometimes. Like I'm trying to give you this fork and you don't want it. Like no, I I don't. Thank you very much, but no, I don't. So it is a we are fighting a cultural uh, norm, and and so we have to switch the norm. But we're not going to switch the norm unless we get more people saying, I don't need that fork, I don't need that straw.
0: So yeah, there's just so many things we can do, so many little things we can do if we can break, start breaking little habits by taking one or two small steps. And, and if there's seven and a half billion people of us here. And if each one of us takes one small step, we can, we can definitely make big difference.
1: Yeah. Even committing yourself to like, I have lots of pool parties at my house. We have a pool and I have lots of pool parties at my house. And I'm looking at all this classic silverware that I've bought you know this past fall I was and I was like this is ridiculous so I went on to Amazon you go on Amazon you can buy like bamboo silverware you can also buy disposable plates and stuff that have been made from byproduct of sugarcane so when they in the sugarcane industry they're going to harvest the sugarcane part and then a lot of the rest of the plant goes to waste well instead they're now taking some of that and they're actually making disposable silverware they're making disposable plates And so not only are we not using plastic, but we're using something that's biodegradable and it's going to degrade in a landfill within two to three months as opposed to years and years and thousands of years, maybe. Centuries or thousands,
0: depending on the plastic, yeah. Yeah, uh, I greatly appreciate. it. I'm sure, you, as we've talked about, you're you're uh, uh, Jane of all trades. So um, I know <laughs> I'm taking taking up a lot of your valuable time. I appreciate you greatly coming onto this podcast and, and telling your story. Uh, thank you for uh, for scheduling this with me.
1: Yes, you're more than welcome. I'm always happy to spread the word.
0: <laughs> all right, thank you.
1: All right, thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Unless Stories of Everyday Earth Savers. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and learned something new, or at least gained appreciation for somebody's story. Because everybody has a story. Before you leave, I want you to know that I cannot continue without you, the listener, so I thank you so much. If you have any idea for a future show or ways to improve, please drop me an email at feedback at it's And Les is going to be a twice-monthly show, but the first few episodes will be released at an accelerated pace. To make sure you don't miss a show, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you use. Also, make sure to leave a review or comment wherever you downloaded this episode. Positive feedback and constructive criticism can help this podcast to become a better version of itself. So, until next time, take some action to make this world a better place. Because without you, things won't get better. No, they will not. See you soon.